This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Okay. Well, um, yeah, things uh, things went uh, very well with my medical career, but then I decided it'd really be better to be a wildcat. So here I am. <laughs> okay. So our question today is, where did, where did people come from? And uh, what that tells you is where I've come from. I've, uh, I'm in the Department of Biology here. As you uh, probably all know, we don't have an anthropology department. So I am the anthropology department de facto. Um, I also teach at Penn in the anthropology department there. That's what I got my PhD, and I've been teaching there for many years. And uh, most recently, I've become a visiting professor at the University of Manchester in England, where I work with uh, a uh, laboratory called the KNH uh, Bio, uh, Center for Biomedical Egyptology. So I'm, I'll be going there this summer, give, teaching a short course, and then going on to Bolzano in Italy and a few other places in Europe. So it's been a very exciting career, and I've spent a lot of time studying uh, human evolution, among other things. I'll be, teaching, I'll be teaching human evolution in the fall, so those of you who want to come to that, all you undergraduates, come to my human evolution course. It's going to be a great course. And you may have seen this poster around uh, the campus, and... In the, in the beginning, the series that we have, which is called The Beginnings, we've really become time travelers. And it's, it's kind of hard to understand the 13 some odd uh, billion years of the, uh, of the existence of the universe. So in our poster, we've uh, boiled it down to a single calendar year. And the apes first appeared on December 31st at 10.15 a.m., so pretty late arrivals. And Homo erectus appeared at 10.48 p.m. and modern humans actually made the scene about 11.54 p.m. So on that uh, one-year calendar, we were here, to, we got here just about six minutes before midnight. And a little later, we'll talk about how we can reduce that down to one day, and you'll really see how recent we are. Uh, so in this lecture, we're going to go back about an hour or so on this 13.82 uh, billion years to uh, meet a number of characters and their names, you'll see them all soon. It'll be Artie and the Tong Child, Lucy, George from Georgia, Java Man, KNMER1808, uh, Turkana Boy, the Neanderthals, the, and the Neanderthal named Shanidar One, and the Cro Magnon family, which is us. And how did we all start? Well, here's how we started. We started with a fish, Tiktaalik. And Tiktaalik was uh, actually discovered by a uh, biologist down at the, Frank at the uh, Academy of Natural Sciences. And this fish crawled out of the water about 370 million years ago. Why did he crawl out of the water? Because this is where the action is going to be, maybe. <laughs> well, it wasn't always easy. So I don't know who you are, <laughs> but the, the eventually those fish did turn into reptiles. They they left the water because of things drying out, and they had they had fins that they could sort of use as limbs, and they managed to get out of the water and get to the next pond. But eventually they turn into reptiles, and then reptiles wound up turning into Roget's Apatosaurus, large, great, huge, considerable, et cetera, et cetera, all those big words. And earlier lectures in this series have covered the evolution of dinosaurs and their transition into what they are now. Anybody know what dinosaurs are now? Birds, Birds right. And uh, if you see uh, like crows strutting around outside, boy, that must be what T-Rex looked like. 
Well, we'll, we'll skip over all of that because that's all been this, uh, pretty much discussed in earlier lectures and, and start with pre-hominins. And sometimes you hear the term hominids and hominins. Uh, they're kind of synonymous and the, the modern terminology is, is generally hominins. But I'll kind of use both because I keep forgetting which one is which. So uh, they, and we really all descended from little insectivorous, insect-eating tree shrews. Little critters, maybe this big. There, there's some shrew biologists back there. <laughs> you seem excited about that. <laughs> and, um, and that was about 80 million years ago. So does anybody know any larger animals that were walking around 80 million years ago? What, was, what were the animals, the major large animals walking around 80 million years ago? Dinosaurs. The dinosaurs were wiped out about 65 million years ago. So here are all these uh, little critters kind of scurrying around under the feet of the dinosaurs. Then, but about 50 million years ago is when we see the forms that are uh, similar to uh, modern monkeys and uh, other uh, creatures, tarsiers and, and lemurs. And about 30 million years ago, in the uh, moist tropical forests of Africa, a group of primates called the Dryopithecines diverged from the monkey line and they dropped out of the trees. About 18 million years ago, there was climate change and uh, the isolation of small populations. And that's very important in evolution. When you have small populations isolated, that whatever, uh, whatever genetic changes there are tend to be perpetu perpetuated until they become a separate species. And they gave rise to the later hominids, or the human line, and pongids, which are the great apes. And a lot of them went extinct. So here's a whole bunch of extinct primates between oh, roughly 56 million to 8 million years ago. One of the issues, however, in the study of human evolution is there are basically no fossils from the exact time when, when hominins diverged from the pongid lane, when, line, when uh, human, the human line diverged from the great ape line. But we do know they came out of the trees. It was <laughs> clearly traumatic for some of those individuals. So here's an uh, evolution timeline for modern humans. And as I said, 13, between 13 and 6 million years ago, MYA, million years ago, there are no fossils. And this is, uh, as we'll talk about in a minute, the time of the Piltdown Man hoax. About eight to five million years ago, Artipithecus and the Australopithecines developed. Four to two million years ago, we had the Australopithecines. About two million years ago, that is the evolution of the modern line of the genus Homo and Homo habilis, which literally means handyman. This was one of the first tool using uh, early ancestors and several others. It seems, for a while, it seems that every time somebody dug up a tooth, it became a new species. And uh, it's uh, been an interesting process. Then um, about 150 million years ago, we have um, the Neanderthals and also about the same time, modern uh, humans. And th these, um, various spe these early species, Artipithecus and Australopithecines, they um, were quite successful. They spread throughout the savanna in, in uh, Africa. And this is an interesting thing because if you ask people to uh, tell, to look at pictures and, and pick out pictures they really like, paintings and such, 
they invariably pick a grassy scene with a few trees scattered around and a brook somewhere or a little river somewhere. And that's because where we came from. That's the kind of environment that we came from. So embedded in our genes is this uh, attraction to that kind of scenery, all going back millions of years. There, um, and there's uh, most of these fossils, as I said, are in Eastern Africa and South Africa. There are no fossils from West Africa. And the reason for that is probably not that the human, that uh, humans are not developing there is because it's so darn hard to work in, South, in West Africa. There's a saying there, Wawa. It has nothing to do with our, our convenience stores. West Africa wins again. I mean, there's always wars and disease and so on. So people just don't want to work there. And when I was a graduate student in the um, 1970s, uh, the path of human evolution seemed very clear. And we were taught that uh, we had Australopithecines and they turned into uh, Homo erectus and they turned into Homo neanderthalensis and they turned into Homo sapiens. And that was very straight evolutionary line. And when there were so few fossils that we poor graduate students were actually expected to know them all. We were supposed to be able to draw pictures of the fossils. There were maybe 30 or 40 fossils. Well, that's gotten a lot more complicated. And um, there are no clear answers. It's uh, still kind of uh, controversial. And the first thing you have to think about is the vagaries of fossilization. And only about one bo bone in a billion ever becomes fossilized. So if you took the all living Americans, right now we have about 300 million Americans, and if they all died and they were all, and some of them were fossilized, so it's 300 million people, modern humans have 270 bones, the number of fossils that we would have, 50. We would have 50 fossils out of the 300 million people, 50 bones out of 350 million people that are living in the United States today. So let's take a look at some of these and let's start with Artipithecus and Australopithecines. As I said, from three, 13 million to 6 million years ago, there's just no fossils. So there was always this uh, search for the missing link, the, the connection between early ape-like creatures and modern human-like creatures. And uh, in uh, 1911, Charles Dawson in England discovered, in quotes, the missing link in England. And it turned out to be a hoax. It was a, uh, the skull of a chimpanzee, and the, I'm sorry, the skull of an ancient human, uh, not, uh, a, not a Neanderthal, but a, an ancient Homo sapiens, and the jaw of an orangutan. And it had been dyed very carefully to match up and so on. And the perpetrators of that hoax have never been identified. Uh, Dawson was certainly involved, that's, that's pretty clear. And there's some speculation that Teilhard de Chardin was involved, and incidentally, he's a Mendel, he was a Mendel, Mendel Prize winner. And probably he didn't uh, do this because he was trying to really uh, pull a trick off on, on the whole scientific establishment. He was French, of course, and I think he was really playing a trick on the British. He knew that they would really love to have the ancestors of modern humans be discovered in England. So he would, may have been involved in, in this uh, hoax in that respect. But let's say hello to Artie, Artipithecus ramatus, who um, has uh, looked a lot like some of the later hominins, but uh, retained long, thick arm bones of apes and very thin tooth enamel. Apes have thin tooth enamel. So here's Artipithecus, fairly complete skeleton. 
dating back about 4.4 million years ago and may have come down out of the trees again so that's one small step for a primate one giant leap for mankind uh, so this uh, already was discovered in Ethiopia and the first uh, there were just a few fragments in fact the first fragment was just a couple of teeth but that was enough for the uh, investigators to say that well this is a and in the modern human evolutionary line. And that was in 1993, and it showed, again, some features of the later hominids, but it uh, looks close to the split from apes. And um, publication in this field is not something where you uh, find something and the next day it's published, um, where is it? It's not on one of these things the next day. <laughs> It took them 16 years working on this before they got enough fossils for that picture that I showed you and before they could publish it. They actually re eventually recovered 110 specimens and that's the most, that one was the most complete one that they found. And this creature could climb trees but it also had an early form of bipedality. It could walk on two, on two hind legs and a somewhat erect posture. There's no evidence in Artipithecus of uh, vertical climbing, like so, hanging from trees. Um, for instance, if, if you go to the zoo, you see the gibbons. They're very graceful, you know, they swing around and everything. They basically have hardly any thumbs, you know, their, their, hand, their paws are like this so they can hook onto trees. Artipithecus has thumbs. Um, it doesn't have any evidence of knuckle walking. The great apes knuckle walk, and you can see that from their skeletons. So Artipithecus has been posited as the predecessor to Australopithecines. And some of the oldest uh, evidence we have is Australopithecus anamensis, hard to say. And it dates back about four million years, again found in East Africa, in Kenya. And these were found during mining excavations for lime in a place called Tong, South, um, South Africa. And they were sent to Raymond Dart, who was the chair of anatomy at the uh, University of Witwatersrand, or Wit, is that what they call it, in uh, Johannesburg. So this was a very young person and has been re uh, is referred to generally as the Tong child. And he published a description of, quote, an extinct race of apes intermediate between living anthropoids and man. They didn't say human back then, they said man. Uh, and the defining characteristics were a small nasal opening, small canine teeth, apes have great big canines, um, small mandible and a relatively large brain, although a lot smaller than modern humans, and a, critically a forward location of the foramen magnum. The foramen magnum literally means big hole, foramen magnum. It's the hole at the base of your skull where your spinal cord comes up and in People in animals that walk erect, which basically means us, the foramen magnum is located kind of forward. In apes, it's back here because they're still largely quadrupedal, and certainly all quadrupedal animals have a foramen magnum in the back of the skull. So the Tong child became the uh, type specimen of Australopithecus africanus, Australis southern ape, Australopith and, and africanus. And uh, many of the uh, eminent experts of the day disputed Tart's, uh, Dart's explanation. Um, they thought it was nothing more than an extinct ape on the basis of certain anatomical details, but also 
because nobody liked Raymond Dart very much. So, you know, personalities always play a role in this sort of thing. So, the first question that comes up is, were these creatures bipedal? And in humans in Australopithecines, the thigh bone is angled, and I'll show you a picture of that in a minute. The knee and the foot are near the midline of the body rather than being out like this. And so humans have a very efficient, upright, bipedal stride. The chimpanzee thigh bone is not angled, and the knee and the foot are further away from the midline of the body. So when you see you know, chimps on television, they dress them up and they walk them around, but they don't walk, they waddle. And here's an illustration of that. So we see the modern human where the thigh bone comes down like this, and Australopithecine has the same kind of anatomy. Chimps, the bones come straight down. And the critical point here, actually, is you don't need the whole bone to determine this. All you need is this part, because there's an ang in modern humans, there's an angle. So this, the uh, femur, the shaft comes down like this, and then the, the end of it, the uh, joint area, actually has a bend in it so that there's a flat bottom here to articulate with the tibia. And in apes, it just comes, it's all just straight down. So you can draw a, basically a T. You go this way and this way. In humans, it's this way and then this way. You get an angle there. And what's so important about walking upright? Well, what's important is that when you get thirsty, you don't have to go over to a brook and bend down on your hands and knees you pick up a bottle and you can drink. Or if you have a baby, you can carry that baby around. You can go out in the fields and you can gather food. Apes uh, really, uh, I mean, uh, other animals, quadrupedal animals can't do that. They have to go out and graze or, or kill something <laughs> and uh, eat it. So, so upright posture is a very important human characteristic. And the other thing that you can do is with your hands is carry weapons. And you know, humans are not very, uh, we're not very powerful. You know, we're out there. In, how many of you have been to Africa? Anybody been to Africa? Okay. So you know when you uh, are riding around, when you're riding, oh, hi, Alan. When you're riding in your Land Rover and you see lions out there, you're awfully glad you're in that Land Rover. Uh, and what's interesting about it is that if you get down lower in the Land Rover, if, or worse, if you're on the ground, you can't see the lions. Once you get up a little higher, you can see them. So uh, upright posture is also important in spotting predators. <laughs> we were, when we were there, uh, we, uh, the guides always carried a rifle. And we said to uh, one of them, uh, have you ever had to use that? And he said, well, once we went for a little hike, and when we came back, there were three lions sitting in the, in the Land Rover. He said, what did you do? He said, we waited till they left. <laughs> <laughs> so. Here's uh, about 3.6 3 million years ago, there's two early hominins, probably Australopithecines, walked upright across the African plain. And um, how do we know that? Well, we know that because we have their footprints. They were walking across a, uh, probably a lava field, and then it uh, dried out, and their footprints remained. And here are their footprints. And there's some controversy as to whether these are uh, really um, footprints of, of humans or just an ape. But uh, they do show the two individuals walking side by side, one of them a little smaller than the other, had taking a little shorter strides and having to catch up. And that's uh, not terribly characteristic of apes, but it's always a question, is this a hominin 
or is it a pongid? And they've actually done topographic mapping of these uh, footprints. This, the area is called the Ladoli, and this was pr probably an area of volcanic ash that just dried out and then was preserved. And important features here are that the big toe is in line with the other toes, and as opposed to even that, uh, that Artipithecus where the toe is out here. And the arch of the foot is raised. It's not as deep an impression. And the impression is also deep at the big toe. So that um, this tells you that this, per this individual pushed out from the big toe at the end of each step. So when you're walking, check that out and see if you do that. If you don't, then you're an ape, I guess. <laughs> Of course, not everybody agrees with that, but uh, there's always controversy. Well, probably the most uh, familiar of all the early hominins was Lucy. Uh, Lucy in the sky with diamonds. And those of you who remember the uh, 20th century, uh, <laughs> remember the Beatles singing Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Well, when uh, Don Johansson and Tom Gray were working at Hadar in Ethiopia, and uh, they had a phonograph and they were playing the Beatles. And they, uh, they recovered a number of fragments, and they decided to name this individual Lucy after Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Oh, speaking of uh, the 20th century, by the way, I've put out here some, uh, I, uh, some suggestions for further reading. So there's a number of websites in there. And for those of you who do remember the 20th century, there's some books, too. <laughs> uh, so this is Lucy's the most complete skeleton that been found to date from all of these early uh, hominids that flourished between about two and seven million years ago. And her skeleton clearly shows that she walked upright, but she has a very narrow rib cage, short legs, small brain. Um, our, a modern human has a brain of roughly 1,200 cc's, and uh, these individuals were about 500 cc's. Well, here's an Australopithecine cocktail party. <laughs> And here's Lucy, the Lucy. And she was an adolescent girl. She's 3.18 million years old. And, and I, uh, the dating is done from the rocks that these uh, individuals are found in. And it's a very complicated chemical analysis. And I can talk about it later if anybody has any questions. But she was less than four feet tall. She had long arms and uh, narrow shoulders, short legs. And that's pretty typical of a tree-living hominin. So these individuals were still living largely in trees and then coming down during the day. Not, not all that much different from modern gorillas, actually. That's what they do. But her canine teeth were very much reduced. So this is not a chimpanzee. And um, she probably would not win any beauty contest, but uh, here is a reconstruction of Lucy. And she's often described as a, a bipedal ape, which I think is a little unfair. But she's not the only Lucy. so. Rocking the anthropologic world, a second Lucy was discovered in southern Uganda. Well, it's uh, just a quick summary of the Australopithecines. And um, they lived from four to two million years ago. Let's keep track of my time here. And they lived in eastern, southern, and central Africa. Their brain size is about 300 to 500 cc's, so about the same as a modern gorilla or even a large chimp. Um, mainly plant eaters, probably some insects, small animals, and probably some scavenging. These were not ferocious hunters. 
too many other beasts out there to, uh, to be much of a hunter. They were uh, sexually dimorphic. What? Louder. Louder. Okay. Go like this. A lot louder. There you go. <laughs> okay. That's my prompter. <laughs> you know, the old politicians have teleprompters. I have a wife. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, the females were about uh, three foot six, and the males uh, f about four foot six, about a foot higher. And uh, as you see, the females weighed considerably less than the males. At the same time, there were other species there, but they seem to have died out. So we had uh, Kenya anthropus and Paranthropus and Paranthropus robustus, and these all seem to have died out, and they didn't leave any descendants. So. Um, it's currently believed that either uh, a Afarensis or a Rudolfensis, and Rudolfensis is one from the area around Lake Rudolph against this issue of naming, giving a name to uh, various species just based on finding an, another fossil. Uh, I'm not giving you a definite answer here, and the reason for that is that there isn't any. There's a lot of controversy about genera, about species, and who we finally came from. but. I do have a multiple choice question from you, for you. So uh, projecting the 4.6 billion year history of the Earth, now not the whole universe, but the Earth, on a 24 hour clock, when did Homo arrive? Modern humans, breakfast, lunch, tea, dinner. How many think it was breakfast? Lunch, afternoon tea, for you British people, no? dinner, the midnight buffet, yeah. Okay, that was easy, huh? You all get A's. Homo erectus, the next one in the line here. And uh, these are fossils that I'm very familiar with because these were things we had, again, these were one of the few fossils that we had back when I was in graduate school. This one, this is a skull cap. It's just kind of flattened out. In fact, we used to call, we referred to this as when we were graduate students as Homo turtleensis. It kind of looks like a turtle shell, but, uh, and the femur, again, it shows, and very clearly in this picture, that angle of the end of the femur that indicates that this is a, an individual walking upright. There's a lesion here. There's a big protuberance of bone here in the, in the femur. It's right, right in this area, right in here. And um, there are a couple of things that this can be. It could be due to trauma of some sort, but uh, most likely, it's uh, because this is an area that has a lot of fluorine in the environment. And animals that graze in these areas develop something very similar to this. It's, uh, the medical term is myositis ossificans, which is uh, doctor talk. Myo is muscle, itis is inflammation. Ossificans means it's ossified, <laughs> turned into bone. So, uh, you know, if we didn't use these medical terms, we could only charge half as much. So, um, you know, this I'll skip. This is just a listing of all the various uh, genus that fit into Homo. And you can see there are a lot of them. Every time somebody finds a fossil, new name. So here's early Homo species and the uh, ones that are important as uh, Homo habilis and Ergaster and Rudolfensis and then Homo erectus. And here's an illustration of early man, a little early to dinner. And Homo ergaster is one of the Im important predecessors. And this is a new name that was proposed for uh, this African specimen. And 
whether Homo erectus, which obviously means stand, vertical standing up man, or Homo ergaster, and I'm not sure what the meaning of that is, whether that's one of those is in a direct line or not is still kind of an open question. And various uh, workers group them all together differently. But it's, so again, we have uh, diversity, contro controversy, and some inconsistency even within the same textbook. You read uh, some of the books, probably some of those on that list, and you'll find the names tend to get confused. But in, 19, in uh, 1985, Richard Leakey discovered Turkana boy in Africa. And this is an eight-year-old boy. And it was kind of a mix between the Australopithecines and modern human features. The uh, brain capacity is 850 cc's. So we're getting a little bigger brain now. They're getting up towards that 1,200, 1,400 for modern humans. And the teeth were on their way to a more modern form. Still pretty robust teeth. You were able to crack nuts without too much trouble, but looking a little more modern. Very prominent brow ridges. And sexual dimorphism was decreased. It was now about 25% instead of 50%. And uh, that's a change that, uh, it's nice for dancing cheek to cheek, having less sexual dimorphism, but also it's a, a change away from the social structure of apes where, the, where male apes are so much bigger and stronger than the females because you know, they're the, the leaders of the pack and they have to be big and strong to, to kill their rivals or fight them off. So Homo erectus may have been edging toward greater sexual equality. But Turkana boy, he was only about eight years old when he died. And that's based on evidence of his teeth. He still had some baby teeth, deciduous teeth. And fewer than half of his permanent teeth had formed. So he was still under 10 years old. And when we mature, the ends of our bones fuse into the, to the shaft. And some of his had not fused yet. So uh, he was still a younger child. And he was very tall and lanky and completely at home striding out in the open savanna. He had no pathology. The, the skeleton didn't show any pathology. So we have no idea what killed him. Whatever it was happened long, either acutely or long before his bones were involved. Uh, his height as an adult has been calculated at 6 feet 4 inches. A real giant. I don't think there's uh, anybody in this room that's that tall. Um, and tall, thin people have a real advantage in living in a very hot environment like Africa because they have a relatively great surface area, which helps in dissipating their heat. In contrast, dwellers in colder climates tend to be short and stocky so that they don't have so much surface area. So um, Eskimo, compare Eskimos to Africans, big difference. Anatomic studies show that the canal for the spinal cord in his neck was smaller than modern humans. So the spinal cord had to have been smaller than modern humans. And that uh, suggests that he really didn't have all that much control over his vocal apparatus. He wasn't able to speak, or may have, I'm sure he had sounds, but he uh, was probably not able to speak the way we can. I don't think he could stand up here and give this lecture. So here's dinner on the Savannah. And it wasn't easy because uh, these early individuals, these early hominids, only had simple stone tools. And uh, they could butcher animals, but mostly they scavenged. And they had to, while they were doing that, they had to fend off various uh, an other animals like hyenas and jackals and vultures, all pretty nasty critters. And the big question is, 
once they got the meat, did they have fire? Could they eat meat? And animal bones clearly show uh, cut marks made with stone tools. So we know that they cut up animal carcasses to eat meat. And, but it's only been recently that uh, a date for domestication of fire by Homo erectus has come up at one million years ago. So early hominins such as Homo ergaster, which are older than that, about two million years old, they probably ate their meat raw. And um, well, I give him full credit for inventing fire, but what's he done since? It's sitting around. And I got involved in this actually in an interesting way. Uh, uh, Richard Leakey and um, Alan Walker, who's at, um, at Johns Hopkins, contacted me about a fossil that they had uh, excavated, that they had unearthed. And uh, it's Kenya National Museum, East Rudolph, number 1808. And these are very strange bones. What they found first was 50,000 fragments. This is sort of uh, one of these all the king's horses and all the king's men had to put this back together again. And they were able to do that. And when they did it, they found that these bones had some interesting pathology. There was a layer of very dense bone laid down alongside or outside of the, these bones. The red part is, um, <coughs> the red is what they were able to reconstruct. And the, um, and the long bones had this dense deposit of bone on the outside. The skull was not involved. So, but this is, all this red is the actual reconstruction that they were able to uh, make. And what they were able to do because the bones are so fragmented is that here is the bone put together, but here they made a cast of the underlying bone, the bone that's underneath all this stuff on the outside. And if we looked at this with a microscope, we see that here is the normal bone, and normal bone is laid out a very nice pattern. You see, these are the spaces where the bone cells are. Now this is about uh, 1.8 million years old, and it's fossilized stone. This is stone. The way you make these slides is the same way that geologists make slides of, of rocks. They grind them very thin. So this is uh, about 10 times the thickness of a uh, normal tissue slide that we would be looking at. but. What we can see is, so this is normal bone with all these um, lacunae, these spaces for the bone cells, laid out in a very nice pattern because they, respect, they react to the stress of gravity and muscles and movement and so on. But layered on top of that is very disoriented, loose, what's called woven bone with the, uh, the cells arranged in all sorts of different directions. It's just very disorganized bone. and these spaces are much bigger than these spaces because these are very active bone cells that have been in here. Of course, the cells are long gone. They decomposed millions of years ago. So this is very abnormal bone. And the <coughs> diagnosis I was able to make was um, that this was an example of hypervitaminosis A, an over diet, a diet taking in too much vitamin A. And this has been documented in modern individuals. I got a chance to read the literature on this, which is really kind of uh, funny in a lot of ways because, uh, they, the, as you might expect, well, there, there's two uh, cases in which people get too much vitamin A. One is when uh, parents say, gee, if I give my kid, what, what's the kitty vitamin that they have? Do you know, there's a name for kid, the vitamins. Anyway, I don't remember. Well, they're kitty vitamins, they're chewables. They're chewables. And, uh, one, and a parent will say, well, if I give my kid one a day, 
that's pretty good. But if I give them 50 a day, they're bound to be much better. And they wind up getting hypervitaminosis. And then they get bone pain and a number of other uh, symptoms. The, um, so chronic overdosage. And the other is uh, people who feel the same way. That uh, you know, maybe I better just take massive doses of, of multivitamins. And um, chronic overdosage in modern humans causes loss of appetite, anorexia, and nausea and vomiting, dry skin, enlarged liver, and periosteal bone deposition. Bone deposition on top of the normal bone, just like this. And bone pain, and also visual and mental disturbances. And uh, this young lady uh, probably had many of these symptoms. And the most likely source for her vitamin A is liver, because uh, liver is a uh, food pyramid sort of thing. Um, animals ingest, herbivores eat plants. They get vitamin A out of, uh, out of, out of plants. Then carnivores eat them, and they then concentrate the vitamin A in their liver. And then if you eat their liver, you're going to get even more dosage of vitamin A. And uh, this is, uh, and liver might have been a preferential food at this early time in human evolution because liver is easy to eat when it's raw. Meat, meat is hard to eat, but uh, raw meat, but raw liver is easily eaten. So, and this is, a, this is actually a trap that polar explorers ran into in the early 20th century when they were out there in Antarctica or in the, the Arctic. And uh, they, would, they would run out of food and they would wind up killing their dogs and eating the dogs. They'd run out of matches, they couldn't light fires, they'd run out of fuel, and they would eat the liver raw. And they would uh, really go bonkers, walk out into blizzards and die and that sort of thing. So this, uh, this early period of human dietary experimentation was not without its hazards. Well, here's a new find. And this was just reported in 2013. Another fine example of how uh, Paleoanthropology, study of human evolution, tends to work on a geologic time scale in some ways. Um, Vijay, would you be very happy if you discovered something and then published it 13 years later? <laughs> I don't think so. But that's what happened here with uh, this uh, Dimanisi skull. These are skulls found from the Republic of Georgia in uh, what used to be the USSR and was reported just recently uh, in Science in 2013. So they worked on it for. 13 years. And again, this is a uh, fossil that dates back 1.8 million years. So it appears that the uh, expansion out of Africa started a lot earlier than people thought. We thought that, uh, that, these, uh, that the expansion out of Africa really didn't occur until about a million years ago. But it seems it's about twice as long ago. And they actually have found five fossils, which I guess justifies having four species, three species names. So they came up with Homo erectus ergaster georgicus, otherwise known as George from Georgia. And here are the five fossils. And uh, they've got this rather lengthy name. But by uh, about 750,000 years ago, uh, Homo erectus had actually even reached China, Chukutian, and all the way down to, jo to modern Java, starting from here and up to North, uh, North Africa. And here's a, a diorama. Well, what happened to my picture? Did I lose that picture? Oh, here it is. Sorry, I skipped the picture. So here's a diorama of Peking man. Uh, it was originally called Synanthropus, meaning Chinese man, but now it's uh, just a part of Homo erectus. 
And it was, a, again, a kind of rough life. Here's a giant hyena coming down and about to gobble up Peking Man. And these first uh, fossils were found uh, with crushed bones. In fact, some early anthropo some anthropologists at the time thought that this was evidence of cannibalism. But it's pretty clear that these were uh, being preyed upon by these various nasty critters out there. And these, uh, were, these hyenas were the size of lions. And uh, they could easily hunt and kill. So uh, these uh, Peking man fossils or Homo erectus fossils were found in what may have been an ancient hyena den. And uh, these fossils disappeared. They were being kept in China, but at the start of uh, World War II, they disappeared. We had sent a ship to remove, to rescue these fossils and people, and the ship got sunk. And these fossils, it's not clear whether they ever actually were put on the ship or not. So this is, again, one of the great mysteries in paleoanthropology. Someday, maybe somebody is going to find a box with these fossils in it. So where do we go from there? Well, paleoanthropologists have uh, two competing ideas about the relationship between modern humans and Homo erectus. Some say that we uh, evolved in different parts of the world from one to two million years ago. That's referred to as multi-regionalism. And others say that we evolved from an African ancestor less than 200,000 years ago, then expanded out of Africa and replaced Homo erectus and other species. Well, DNA studies seem to indicate it's the latter, that all modern humans evolved from what you may have heard referred to as African Eve, one woman living in, in, uh, Afri in North Africa about 150,000 years ago. So that favors the Africa out of uh, the out of Africa model, and then there are a number of species that were found in Europe. So this is called Homo heidelbergensis, obviously found in the area of Heidelberg, and they were living between 500,000 and 40,000 years ago. And this is, of course, the uh, time of the Ice Age. So that's it, Jenkins. Indisputable proof: the Ice Age caught these people completely off guard. It's a rough time to be alive. But we did adapt to the Ice Age, and in particular the Neanderthals, who uh, developed about 150,000 years ago and lived till 50,000 years ago. And uh, I'm sorry, 30,000 years ago. Uh, Homo neanderthalensis. And uh, some people believe that they're actually Homo sapiens, so that they will lump them in as Homo sapiens neanderthalensis. And then we become Homo sapiens sapiens, so we're even wiser. We're wise, wise humans, wise, wise humans. But Neanderthals are very different in a lot of ways from modern humans. So the Neanderthals had a long, low brain case. We have kind of a tall, rounded brain case. They have big brow ridges, very funnel-shaped chest. You can see the chest shape here. They're shorter and stockier than modern humans. Great big fingers and toes. And of course, modern humans have a little brow line here, but no brow ridges, and a rather narrow pelvis and slender fingers and toes so that we can uh, play the piano. So here's a reconstruction of uh, a Neanderthal, not, not a very handsome looking fellow. I'm sure there were better looking ones. But um, again, another uh, study that I was involved in, in the 1950s, uh, they found the remains of nine Neanderthals in Shanidar Cave in Iraq. And one of the uh, adult males had suffered multiple injuries much earlier in life, and he had uh, probably was blind and lost most of his right arm. 
and he was a, a man about, about 50 years old, so somebody must have been taking care of him. And again, I was asked to uh, kind of put this all together. So here's uh, Chanador One, this 50-year-old man, and his the right, uh, the left side of his left orbit is crushed. So he was certainly blind in this eye, and probably blind in both eyes. When you have a crushing injury to one eye, there's uh, basically an immunologic reaction that destroys the other eye. So that uh, in modern medicine, if somebody has a crush injury in one eye, it's immediately removed to prevent that immunologic reaction because it's you know, better to have one eye than none. And here's his left arm and his right arm. And you notice there's something missing. They found the limb bones from here, but uh, nothing here. So, and this has got, uh, in addition to being extremely thin, it's got multiple fractures. You can see the angulation here and a fracture here where the whole elbow joint is missing. So um, he um, was a severely handicapped person, and yet somebody was taking care of him. And uh, they, um, they lived at the time of cave bears and woolly mammoths, and uh, it was cold, and uh, you know, this is Ice Age time. They lived in very small groups, but they had, they had beautifully uh, developed, uh, exquisitely worked stone tools, and their brains were even larger than modern humans. Their brains were about 1,500 cc's, so a little bit larger than modern humans. And uh, their remains were initially found from the Neander Valley near Dusseldorf in Germany. Uh, but by 30,000 years ago, they were extinct. And if you want to really impress people, you say Neanderthal, even though it says Thal. <laughs> the, the reason for that is uh, it's German grammar. and uh, the. Uh, in classic German, you don't pronounce the H, so this is pronounced Neanderthal. And around 1900, the uh, German, uh, whoever determines these things in Germany, said, well, this is, as my wife is fond of saying, about the stupidest thing I ever heard of. We've got a, a letter there that we never pronounce. Let's start pronouncing it. So they changed the pronunciation to, Neander to Neanderthal. However, these fossils were found before that change. So by the rules of nomenclature, you still have to say Neanderthal, even though it's spelled Neanderthal. Well, it's a tough world, right? These giant cave bears. Criminy, it seems like every summer there's more and more of these things around. I'm zipping through all my pages here. Well, oh, the other uh, important thing about Neanderthals, oh yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you, you really don't want to have a mammoth whistle. <laughs> uh, most of the Neanderthals were, were um, many Neanderthals have been found to be intentionally buried. So it's clear that they had a well-developed social structure. But then we have modern humans. So 150,000 years ago, and, and here's a discussion group for <laughs> modern humans. <laughs> and here's a diorama from the Ukraine showing how they built their houses there, and they, they built them out of mammoth bones. So they've found rem remains of these ha houses, and it would involve 15 tons of bones from 95 different mammoths to build a house like this. But you can see they're dressed very warmly. It's still pretty darn cold at this time. And 
we found all sorts of evidence of the culture that they had. Here's fossilized human bones from a cave in what is now Israel. And this is a mother with her child, a little hard to see, but uh, there's, a, there's some smaller bones in here that represent a child. So that uh, this was a, uh, probably a ritual burial. And we know that they had art. This is uh, the last famous Lascaux Caves uh, in France. These date to about 17,000 years ago. And these have been found in uh, Altamira, which is in Spain, and Lascaux in uh, France. And they're outlined drawings of creatures that they uh, hunted or maybe worshipped. They're uh, done in uh, different color, in, in ochre, in charcoal, and some natural pigments. And they portray mammoths and antelopes, bison, oxen, horses, things that some of which are no longer uh, um, extant in Europe. The humans appear as well, but when it is, they're, they're just shadow figures. And they're handprints, and sometimes with missing fingers. So there are handprints that kind of look like this. And the question is, is that kind of the signature of the person who was doing it? We don't really know. So the whole meaning of these paintings is in some question, but they certainly indicate fully <coughs> human minds at work. And they were working in dark, uncomfortable caves. And um, in, it's believed uh, that some of these uh, drawings re represent a passage to the underworld that you're trying to, that some of these kind of show animals coming out of the rocks and their um, indications of a, a, some sort of early form of religion. And they work very hard at this. So. But there's always a critic. <laughs> and sometimes they really weren't very successful. So, <laughs> racing into the cave. Ah. <laughs> we know that they had music. We found bone flutes. So they probably had a band. <coughs> but here's something that paleoanthropologists love to do. They make, like to make <laughs> cladograms. So this is a diagram of all of these different uh, fossils that we've been talking about. So there are a lot more than those four that I learned when I was in graduate school. But the interesting question about all of this is, if humans living this year were fossilized, would a paleoanthropologist in the year 2014 consider them to all be the same species? You know, there are many differences in the skeletons. You know, the different uh, ethnic groups have very different skeletal, have great differences in their skeletal anatomy. And if somebody was digging them up a few thousand years or a few million years later, would they can still be considered to be the same species? Maybe yes, maybe no. We don't really know. One interesting question is uh, why do humans have different skin colors? And you know, anthropologists, we, we don't talk about races anymore. We, you know, we now talk about ethnicity or skin color. And the modern humans uh, living in uh, Northern Europe about 15,000 years ago almost certainly had fair skin as we saw in that diaphragm. But they were undoubtedly descendants of Homo sapiens with uh, dark skin. So skin color is exposed, is. Uh, associated with exposure to sunlight. People living in sunny tropical areas have darker skin and people in the, uh, in the uh, colder areas have lighter skin. And why is that? And uh, 
why do we have that? Darker skin protects against skin cancer. Now, ultraviolet light is very dangerous to, in terms of skin cancer. The answer it all boils down to vitamins. So the body depends on ultraviolet light to produce vitamin D. And you need vitamin D to absorb calcium from your intestines. If you don't absorb calcium, you're going to get rickets. Your bones are going to be very weak, and that's going to cause all kinds of problems. So fair skin lets in much more ultraviolet light than dark skin. And so DNA mutations and evolution and selection led to lighter skin, and it helped people to stay healthy in Europe and other regions that get fewer hours of sun. The negative aspect, of course, is due to modern uh, technology. So fair-skinned people who get on a ship or a plane and migrate to areas where there's a lot more sun are at much greater risk for the development of skin cancer. And in Australia, they have this policy of slip, slap, slop. Slip on a shirt, slap on a shirt, and slop on sunscreen. They, have, they still have one of the highest incidence of skin cancer in the world. On the other hand, dark-skinned people living in uh, regions where ultraviolet light levels are relatively low, for example, Africans brought to North America by the slave trade and their descendants who moved to northern cities, they're at risk for rickets from low levels of vitamin D. And of course, we can treat that or prevent that by um, ingestion of vitamin D and pills and so on. So modern humans have uh, really expanded. We've co we cover the globe. And um, this has all happened in 150,000 years. So we're pretty young compared to all these other things that we've been talking about. There were 7,000 million years ago, 7 million years ago and so on. But in the short time we've existed, we've populated the whole globe. And many scholars think that innovations like language and creative expression, sophisticated tools help modern humans gain an advantage over other hominids. Why did the, the Neanderthals become extinct? Probably because they were just simply outcompeted <coughs> for resources by Homo sapiens. So now we're the only living species of hominid around the world. And language is a very important part of it. <laughs> Are we still evolving? Well, as I said before, uh, e evolution of separate species really depends on isolated populations that evolve and cha change their genetic makeup and then become a separate species, meaning no longer able to mate and produce viable offspring. Uh, so um, that was the case in early uh, human evolution, and we don't really have that anymore. Human, the human genome changes uh, in minor ways, but under present conditions, it's more than likely that we will not have a new human species. Could it happen? Well, it could happen if our populations become small and isolated or if humans experience some kind of environmental collapse, war, pandemic disease, some sort of global catastrophe, global warming. We don't know, could happen. I mean, there's big floods in England right now. It's never happened before. Some, uh, some experts think there's another scenario possible. We have the ability to manipulate the human genome now. So we could change them and make change people and make some of them reproductively isolated from others so they could become a separate species. Other people say they're not going to do that. There's enormous technical problems. There's m political and moral barriers. We're not going to be changing the human genome and making a separate species. So, uh, but you never know what's going to happen. So looks to me like the human species is advancing. Your baby was born with three USB ports. So the last question is, 
What's our future as we turn more and more intellectual functions over to computer chips? I just got this, what, three weeks ago, I guess? I've already forgotten every phone number I ever knew. <laughs> it's all in here. I don't need it anymore. And uh, you know, I wonder about that. Are we going to be faced with a situation where we don't need our temporal lobes anymore, where our memory is? We just put it all in one of these little machines. Or someday, are they just going to implant chips in us when we're born? so that we won't need our brains as much. We'll have smaller brains. You know, smaller brains are not, a, not all that great an idea. It causes a lot of trouble with childbirth. There's an advantage to having a smaller brain. So who knows what the future is going to bring, but uh, we'll hopefully find out. So thank you very much.